Yeah, so this week and for the next few weeks, um, we're going to be looking at this text called the Vimalakirti Nidesha. Um, I've put down four weeks actually, we're going to do four weeks. There is going to be a break on the, I think it's the 5th of March. Sometime around then I'm away. But, so we'll have a week off, but um, there are going to be four weeks on the Vimalakirti Nidesha and we'll see how we get on. And uh, if you're enjoying it, then we'll continue. We can do a few more weeks because um, <coughs> there's a lot we can do on this text. There's an awful lot in it. Um, how many of you have been on the, uh, the recent uh, course with Dhyamala on the Dhammapada? Okay, okay, just a few of you. Bit, when you could, okay. So uh, the Dhammapada, as you know, those of you who are here, the Dhammapada is uh, a text from the Pali Canon. Just come out here, then I can see you. Good. Uh, make sure you don't go off to the pub. Um, uh, it's the Dhammapada is from the Pali Canon, it, which means you go back to early Buddhism. That's as early as we can get, really, going back to the Pali Canon. The Dhammapada is a very, very well-known text. It's been translated over 50 times into English. Um, if anybody is a little bit familiar with Buddhism, they probably are familiar with the Dhammapada, which is just a, a series of short verses by the Buddha arranged in different uh, subjects. And it's very much uh, a teaching manual, you could say. Um, and a lot of the Pali Canon is, when you go back to those early texts, the Buddha's teaching. And he's teaching usually very conceptually. Um, you should do this. If you, wanna, if you want to have a good life, if you want to gain enlightenment, this is what you should do. Do this, this. And if this happens, then you can do this. And whatever you do, don't do that. And if you do do that, then what you need to do is this. So it's all to do with what to do and what not to do and how to live the spiritual life in very easy to understand conceptual terms. And um, that's one way of understanding Buddhist texts because a lot of Buddhist texts are like that. Um, some Buddhist texts aren't like that though. They, they perform a different function. And the Vimalakirti is one of those. So the Vimalakirti Nidesha um, was written down sometime after those Pali texts. Not very long after them, because the Pali texts weren't texts to begin with, they were part of an oral tradition. So the Buddha spoke, and nothing was written down, and everything was remembered. It's only three, four hundred years later that they were written down. So, say four hundred years after the time of the Buddha, the Pali texts were written. A hundred or so years after that, the Mahayana texts began to be written. One of the differences between the those early texts and then what we call the Mahayana texts are that the early texts were, are a written recension of a oral tradition and the Mahayana texts are not that, they're, they're actually literary, they, they were written down immediately. Um, so a few words about the Mahayana, what, what I want to do uh, in this talk is just uh, give you enough background so that when we come to look at the Vimalakirti Nidesha, you understand a little bit about where it's coming from, the, the context out of which it comes. Um, because I know that for some people, when they first begin to read one of the Mahayana Sutras, um, it can be really confusing. You don't know where you are and what's going on. 
Um, so I want to give you an idea about where it's coming from so that you know some basic questions are answered you it helps you to understand a little bit so um, Mahayana I've used that term Mahayana so Mahayana means Maha is great so in one sense it means big but it also means Shunyata it means empty it means um, I guess you know what Shunyata means. This is one of the great, the most important concepts. You don't. Okay, good. One of the most important concepts in Mahayana Buddhism is Shunyata. Shunya is zero. Literally means zero. Shunyata is zero-ness, as it were. So uh, it's usually translated as emptiness. Um, and when people first come across this idea of emptiness, it sounds not good. Uh, it sounds like no value involved. It sounds like really nihilistic. Uh, but it doesn't mean empty in that sense. It's empty of selfhood. Yeah. So shunyata, you could say, means spaciousness. Yeah. Rather than emptiness, it means spaciousness. And it's the spaciousness of realizing you have got no self to protect. You don't need to protect anything because there's nothing actually there to protect yeah not nothing there because you do exist but no thing to protect yeah so that's a little bit about shunyata didn't mean to go into that but i just reminded of that with maha so maha means great but it's also empty of own being yeah there is no thing there uh yana second part of the word Mahayana. Yana is sometimes translated as vehicle so it's the great vehicle or way it's the great way the great way the great vehicle to enlightenment so that's what Mahayana means and very often people talk about Mahayana as if it is a thing and it really isn't a thing it's like anything else in the world according to Buddhism there are no things they're only processes. So it's useful to remember that when trying to understand the Mahayana. The Mahayana is not a school of Buddhism. There are different schools within the Mahayana, just as there were different early schools. Soon after the Buddha, there were different schools. And the, the early text that we know, that we call the Pali Canon, is just one written recension of a possible 18 or so different schools. The reason we've only got one written recension is because uh, the Muslims invaded India and burnt all the Buddhist books in India, burnt them all. And the, the, what, uh, the, the Pali Canon um, survived because it was taken to your country, wasn't it? Yeah, Sri Lanka? That's where you're from, isn't it? So Sri Lanka, so it, it, was, it survived because it was there. Um, so the Mahayana is, is not a school of Buddhism, it's more a kind of movement of which there were many schools, many different expressions of that movement. So now we have to try to understand what that movement was, the nature of that movement. So let's go back to early Buddhism for a bit. Early Buddhism, when you read the Pali Canon, for the most part, it's very human. Um, you've got this man called the Buddha who was an extraordinary individual. He was extraordinary. 
uh, grew up in India, um, left home, gained enlightenment. First time, as far as we know, anyone had gained enlightenment in the Buddhist sense of enlightenment. Um, so he was the founder of this whole tradition that we call Buddhism, which is a remarkable um, achievement, isn't it? To found this massive, massive tradition of Buddhism that's gone on for two and a half thousand years ago in so many different countries. And he's really taking off now in the West. So that's uh, quite an achievement. But he was a human being, yeah? It's made clear in the text that he wasn't God. He wasn't God incarnate. He wasn't the son of God. That's made clear because the Buddha said categorically, actually, there is no God. So it's very clear that he was a human being. And he gained enlightenment. He spent the rest of his life wandering around India teaching. And then he died. And on one level, that's it. That's all there is. There is another level, though, because um, that's the way we modern Westerners like to see the Buddhist tradition. And especially uh, militant atheists, they really like the early texts because it's, it chimes in so well with their um, Richard Dawkins and A.C. Grayling and people like that. It really chimes in with them. They like that early Buddhism because it's not religious. Uh, but there's another strand which, if you read the Pali Canon, you do come across this other strand which is very mythical. So on one level, the Buddha was a man lived in India two and a half thousand years ago, lived about 80, 85 years, and then he died, just like everybody else does. On another level, though, it wasn't like that. So some parts of the Pali Canon give a very mythic account of who the Buddha actually was. So in, in this account, billions and billions of aeons ago, you know, unimaginable time in the past, um, there was a Buddha called Vipassi, and he was teaching, just, just like our Buddha, the one we know, Shakyamuni, was teaching. And one of his pupils was a very good one. And uh, he had lots of pupils, lots of people gaining enlightenment, but one of them decided that he wanted to do what Vipassi had done, which was to discover the Dharma where no one else had discovered it before. Yeah? So, he took what's called the Bodhisattva vow in front of Vipassi. He said, I want to do what you've done. I don't want to just become a disciple and gain enlightenment. I want to actually live at a time when there is no Buddhism, discover it for myself, become enlightened, and then start teaching for the benefit of the beings in that world. So this is the Bodhisattva vow he took billions of aeons ago. And between then, and two and a half thousand years ago in India, what this stream of consciousness did is gained rebirth over and over and over again, billions of lifetimes, one after another, practicing, practicing, practicing the Dharma, uh, getting better and better and better at it till it got to a certain point where he uh, was reborn in this world, in India, two and a half thousand years ago, and he gained enlightenment. Yeah, no one else had done it in this world before. Do you get the idea? So rather than him just being some bod who was born in some place and then he happened to gain enlightenment and then it was kind of meant to be. You know, he'd been, he'd been preparing for this for billions of aeons. So that's the big P 
picture that you get in the Pali Canon. Believe it or not, you do get that. Um, so there's a difference between the Buddha's enlightenment and his disciples' enlightenment. Yeah. In the Pali Canon, it's a little bit. Um, they're a bit ambivalent about this. You get kind of a double message. What the Buddha would say to people when he was teaching them is, I gain enlightenment, if I can do it, you can do it. So, and when you do gain enlightenment, it would just be like my enlightenment. There's only one kind of enlightenment. Yeah, so that's one message. On the other hand, those beings, those people who did gain enlightenment under the Buddha's teachings, continued to worship him. Yeah, so in a sense, there's a difference between the Buddha and his followers' enlightenment. Perhaps the only difference is that he got there first. Yeah? But there's this kind of ambiguity about the whole thing. Is the Buddha's enlightenment different? Yeah? It's not completely clear. Um, so, uh, so when someone comes into the world and rediscovers, that's the way it's put, they rediscover the Dharma for themselves, where no one else is practicing, no one else has heard of it, they become enlightened, and then they start teaching, that person is called a Buddha. Not the Buddha, but a Buddha. So this Buddha, Shakyamuni, who lived two and a half thousand years ago in India, is the latest in a long line of Buddhas. And the one before Shakyamuni was Vipassi billions and billions and billions of aeons ago. And before him, there was another one billions of aeons ago. And it goes back 53 times. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's hard enough to imagine billions and billions of aeons, isn't it? But when you've got 53 times that, it goes beyond your ability to really think about it and imagine it. So we're, we're starting to come close to the Mahayana now. So this is the, this comes in early Buddhism. So in, in that sense, then the Buddha is really quite special. Yeah. He didn't just turn up and decide to do something. He came here specially and he prepared himself for billions and billions of aeons to rediscover the Dharma for himself and teach it. So this is the myth, the big myth that is, underlies the whole of the Pali Canon. Believe it or not, you know, take it or not, this is what's going on in the Pali Canon, according to these people. So, most people, and certainly people around the Buddha's day, they kind of took that on board okay, but it didn't really bother them that much, didn't really have much impact on them, because all they were concerned about was gaining enlightenment. I was reading a book yesterday uh, by uh, an American Buddhist scholar called Jan Natia. It's called A Few Good Men. It's well worth a read. And she talks about the Buddha's job description. Yeah? The Buddha's, it's part of the Buddha's job description to get people enlightened. Yeah, that was his job description. If you're not getting people enlightened, you're not really doing your job. So that's what the Buddha was doing. And that's all people were concerned about. They were just concerned to gain enlightenment. And in a way, that's the end of the story. Except, sometime later, and here we approach the beginning of the Mahayana, some people, it seems, began to think, it's all very well gaining enlightenment, but is that enough, really? Is that enough? Um, 
because yeah okay so the whole thing of rebirth comes in here in Buddhism rebirth is taught and obviously I've just been talking about the Buddha getting reborn again and again and again and again so you get reborn again and again and again until you're enlightened and then when you're enlightened you're not reborn you're not you're neither reborn or not reborn it's very mysterious but you don't get reborn in the same way that unenlightened beings get reborn and in a way that's part of the attraction of gaining enlightenment you don't come back to this world of suffering again and again and again so the problem for some of these Buddhists was okay so we gain enlightenment and then we die and that's it yeah how many people are we going to help then how many people can we help if we gain enlightenment let's say I gain enlightenment at 45 years old and let's say I live till I'm 70 that only gives me 35 years is it 35 or 25 25 years 25 years to really teach and help people which is nothing in the big scheme of things so how about if I took the Bodhisattva vow and I didn't gain enlightenment in this life but I practiced for the next so many billions of aeons and rediscovered the Dharma in a world that didn't have the Dharma and then I would teach so many more people you know, just think about the effect that the Buddha's had on so many billions of people in this world much more so than any of disciples could ever hope to have so then you get this idea of somebody thinking bigger than simply gaining enlightenment for themselves alone yeah they're thinking in a much bigger picture yeah do you get the idea so in the Pali texts it's not as if the Buddha was saying you should do this you know you should you know practice under me but what I really want you to do is take the Bodhisattva vow and practice for billions of aeons he, he wasn't putting that forward as a path the path for him was very simple I've gained enlightenment I can teach you how to do it in this life and that's all there is to it so around the time of the Buddha everyone was trying to do that but it seemed a little bit later people began to think isn't there a better thing we could do there isn't it better for us to practice for the future all these future beings where there's no Dharma yeah so why would they do that why would they do that usually um, the way it's understood is that gaining enlightenment and then dying is a rather selfish project yeah because how many people are you going to really help not that many actually but you gain enlightenment so you're okay and then you die so it began to be seen as a little bit narrow and a little bit selfish to do that and it began to be seen that it might be better if you didn't gain enlightenment in this life actually you kind of held it off as it were so that you could gain the big enlightenment the Buddha enlightenment in billions of lifetimes you following me so far so that's the beginning of the Mahayana so some people uh, up until there's scholars are not we don't exactly know how and why the Mahayana began this great movement called the Mahayana it's kind of a lot of the evidence that we might be able to call on has been destroyed yeah so there's big gaps in our understanding of the Mahayana and there are different theories and theories are always being put forward and then debunked and so on but um, one of the big theories of um, how the Mahayana started was 
the one I just alluded to, which was some people began to think that just gaining enlightenment was a bit of a selfish thing to do. And it's better not to do that and to do this other bigger ideal. So in other words, compassion. Yeah, compassion for other beings was the driving force behind Mahayana. And indeed, I talked about Shunyata just now, but the other big element to Mahayana is Karana, compassion. And those are the two great big ideas, I would say, two of the great big ideas in Mahayana Buddhism. You've got Shunyata, all things are without selfhood, all things are insubstantial. And the other big idea is compassion for other beings. And one idea is that Mahayana grew out of compassion for other beings. It's a compassionate, the big compassionate way to Buddhahood. And some people take it very literally that they say you have to hold off your own enlightenment. You could gain enlightenment in this life, but don't. Because then you won't be reborn, you won't be able to help anyone in, pre in, in subsequent lifetimes. So hold on, hold it, hold it until you can gain the big enlightenment. But that's a rather literal understanding of it. So that's one idea, but Jan Natia, the person I mentioned earlier, she's got a very interesting idea. She thinks it, it might have simply been ambition, that some Buddhist practitioners were really ambitious and they saw there was this ideal called enlightenment, you could, you could do that, but other people were doing that around you and wouldn't there be a better thing to do? Wouldn't, what, maybe what you could do was a step beyond what these other people are doing. So there's this kind of ambition to go further. I don't want to just be an ordinary arahant, as they're called, an ordinary enlightened being. I want to become a Buddha. So there's this much bigger kind of ideal. Yep. So now we, we, another big idea in, uh, in Mahayana Buddhism is the idea of um, Buddha lands. So, um, uh, <coughs> you get this idea of the Buddha Kshetra, a, a Buddha you know. Kshetra it literally means field. But in this context, the Buddha Kshetra is really a Buddha world system, which is a bit like saying a galaxy, <coughs> a, a, a Buddha galaxy, you could say. Sometimes it's translated as Buddha land. And the theme for the um, Manchester Buddha Centre this year is building the Buddha land, isn't it? So talk about that more in a moment. So you've got this idea of Buddha lands and so <coughs> if you were to take the Bodhisattva vow, part of that vow is not just to gain enlightenment, you know, billions of aeons in the future, but in the gain of enlightenment you would purify that place, that land, that world that you lived in to become a Buddha land. Yeah. So the world we live in is a Buddha field, a Buddha Kshetra. It's a Buddha land, yeah, because Shakyamuni started to teach. So now we're in a Buddha land. Now there are three kinds of land, apparently. There are lands with no Buddha, and there are two kinds of lands with a Buddha. There's a pure land and an impure land. Yeah? So we live in an impure Buddha field, an impure Buddha Kshetra. And it's impure in that there is suffering in this world. Yeah. It has all six realms in this world. You know what the six realms are from the Wheel of Life? You've got the human realm, the God realm or the Deva realm, the anti-God realm or the Asura realm, um, the hungry ghost realm, the hell realm and the animal realm. And 
Some of those realms are realms of suffering. The, realms of the, the realm of the hungry ghosts is a realm of pure suffering. The realm of hell is a realm of pure suffering. The realm of the anti-gods is a realm of suffering. And the realm of human beings is a land with suffering and pleasure. Dukkha, Sukkha has both. Dukkha and Sukkha, as you know. I don't need to tell you that, do I? Because you're a human and you know what it's like to live in this world. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's blimmin' awful, isn't it? So you get both. You get both pleasure and pain. And you get that within an hour, don't you? You get both within an hour of life. Even with a minute, you get both pleasure and pain. So our life is both. Um, so our land is an impure Buddha field. But there are pure Buddha fields. And a pure Buddha field is where um, there is no there are no realms of hungry ghosts, there are no hell realms, there are no anti-god realms, and there are no human realms. In a pure Buddha field, everything is just great all the time. We don't live in a realm like that, so we don't need to bother with it. It's got nothing to do with us at the moment. You know, we, there's no point thinking about it even because we can't get there. We're in the impure realm, which is a realm of suffering as well as pleasure. Um, so what, what, part of what a Buddha tries to do, part of another part of their job description, to put it in that very prosaic way, is that they try to purify their Buddha field. Yeah? They try to purify the Buddha field. And this is what the Buddha said many times, isn't it? The only reason I teach, what's the answer? Why do I teach? alleviate suffering. That's the only reason the Buddha taught. He wasn't interested in philosophical debate, he wasn't interested in scoring points or anything. All he was interested in was alleviating suffering. So what he was trying to do, from this mythical point of view, was purify the world that we live in. Yeah? And he couldn't do it on his own. Couldn't do it on his own. So he had to enlist people's help in that. So he taught the Dharma, got them interested, got them involved. They became his disciples. Okay, you're on my side now. You're on the side of purification of this land we're in. So then they would make some progress. Perhaps they'd even gain enlightenment. Then they'd start teaching and so on and on and on and on and on like that. So the whole Buddhist tradition, you could say, starting with our, the Shakyamuni Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, is an attempt to purify our world, to purify it of suffering, yeah, to make it into a pure Buddha land. Interesting that there is a, a whole series of Buddha land texts called the Sukhavati um, uh, text, Sukha, Sukha, pleasure, happiness, Sukhavati text. And they were written uh, in what is now Pakistan. And do you know what the word Pakistan means? Pure land. Pure land. Yeah. Paki, pure, stan, country. Afghanistan is the country of Afghani. Kazakhstan is the country of Kazakh. So Pakistan is pure land, which is one hell of a big coincidence because I'm sure the Pakistani government didn't name it after these pure land sutras. We can be sure of that. Um, so the whole idea of uh, uh, purifying the world that you're in is a very interesting Mahayana idea. I mean, I've said, you know, part of the job description of the Buddha is to purify 
his land. He, I mean, there isn't really anything in those early texts where he's saying that. He's not really doing that. But that's one very interesting way of understanding it. It's the, a way of seeing Buddhism which is very much to do with society and the collective. It's not so much to do with getting off on your own into the countryside and doing your own thing, gaining enlightenment. It's much more to do with, hey, we live in a world. Look at the state of it. What a state we're in. We must do something. And, and Mahayana Buddhism is very interested in that interface between the individual trying to gain enlightenment and society therein. So this is all very much to do with Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism. Let's say a few more words about it before we get on to the Vimanakirti Nidesha. Um, in Mahayana Buddhism, you, uh, you get some very famous uh, ways of practicing the Dharma. Um, it's understood when you, there are different texts in Mahayana Buddhism, many, many different texts, and some of them are, are instruction manuals, much like the Dhammapada is an instruction manual. This is what you do. You do this first. And if this happens, then you do that. So it's very much telling you in very ordinary, nitty-gritty terms how to practice the spiritual life. So you've got the famous Bodhicharyavatara, the Bodhisattva's way of life, Shantideva, telling you how to do it. Yeah? You've got uh, Gampopa's um, uh, dual ornament liberation. You know, very, very set out. You do this and then you do that, then you do that. So you've got those kind of texts, which are very useful instruction manuals. But then you get the sutras, which are completely different. So sutra is the Sanskrit form of sutta from the Pali. And sutta, it literally means thread. Um, but it, it, what it really refers to is a discourse of the Buddha. Yeah, a sutta is a discourse of the Buddha. So the, the Mahayana sutras are supposed to be discourses of the Buddha. That's the way they're presented. Yeah, that's the way they're presented. Really, they're not. Yeah, they're just made up things. People have made them up, they've written them down, and then they've said, the Buddha said all this. And he didn't really, yeah. It's no good, if you, if you speak to a very traditional Mahayana Buddhist from, say, China or Tibet, and you put that to them, they'd be horrified, absolutely horrified, to hear you say that. That would be absolutely sacrilegious. But it seems to be the truth, nevertheless, that these texts weren't actually said or written down by the Buddha. They were written sometime later. But they're put as if they were the word of the Buddha. Now, why? Why would they do that? to gain credibility. Yeah? You need the credibility of the Buddha. So the Mahayana texts are putting forward a different way of understanding the Dharma. Yeah? Different from the early texts. It's a development of. And so they needed some kind of credibility, so they just borrowed the Buddha's voice and said, the Buddha, this is the Buddha. So you get the famous White Lotus Sutra, the, um, the Sadama Pundarika. Uh, you get the, um, the Diamond Sutra from the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. You get the Sutra of Golden Light. All these are supposedly Buddha, the Buddha speaking in them. Um, but probably they were written down by either one people or a team of people. Yeah, they, they put them together. They're literary works. Yeah. Now, 
The Vimalakirti is one of these, the Vimalakirti Nidesha, but notice it's not called a sutra, it's called a Nidesha. Now, the reason for that is because the Buddha does appear in the Vimalakirti Nidesha, but he's not the main character. The main character is Vimalakirti. He's the main teacher of the text. So in the first chapter, it's all about the Buddha. Yep, and it's the first chapter we're going to look at this evening. But then the second chapter is all about Vimalakirti. And then it goes on for the next 11 chapters, all around Vimalakirti. The Buddha's involved in some way, but very much a peripheral figure, mentioned, referred to, but he's not really in there. It's only at the end that the Vimalakirti and the Buddha come to meet together. So it's a very interesting text. So it can't be called a sutra because a sutra is the word of the Buddha and the main teacher here is Vimalakirti. So it's Nidesha, the teaching of Vimalakirti. So Vimalakirti, let me introduce you to him. I'm not going to say very much about him this evening because we're not really going to meet him till next week. Yeah. We're just going to look at the first chapter of the, of the Nidesha this evening, then next week we're going to really meet Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti uh, is a very advanced bodhisattva. So this is something I haven't mentioned, isn't it? Yeah, so you get the bodhisattvas. So a bodhisattva is someone who's taken the bodhisattva vow. Yeah, they're not going to gain enlightenment now. They're going to do what I said the Buddha did, you know, millions and millions of aeons of practice. And a bodhisattva is someone in whom the bodhicitta has arisen. So bodhicitta. Bodhi is cognate with the word Buddha, so enlightenment. Chitta is mind. So it's someone in whom the enlightening mind, the enlightening mind, has risen. Not the fully enlightened mind, because then they'd be a Buddha. The enlightening mind has arisen. So Bodhisattva is someone who's taken the Bodhisattva vow, and the Bodhicitta has arisen within them. What is the Bodhicitta? The Bodhicitta is wisdom and compassion conjoined. So shunyata and karana. The, the wisdom is the understanding that there are no beings. Yeah. There, there, are, there are no things, there are no beings, there's only processes. And compassion is, well, you know what compassion is. Yeah. Um, so it's someone in whom that mind has arisen, not fully, because then they become a Buddha, but they are well on their way. So Vimalakirti is a very advanced bodhisattva. Early Buddhism, uh, one of the strong emphases in early Buddhism is the leaving home. Yeah. Lot, the Buddha left home to do what he did. He had to leave home. He had to get out of there so he can get on with living the spiritual life. And many, many of his disciples did the same. They thought, no, I can't do what I need to do here at home. I need to leave home and become a wanderer. So this is very strong emphasis on leaving home, renouncing family, renouncing possessions, renouncing the home, giving you the freedom to practice fully. Yeah. What the Mahayana did is they said, well, you can do that, or you might not be able to do that. But whatever kind of lifestyle you take, whether you're a monk or a layman, you can take the Bodhisattva vow. And many Bodhisattvas are house dwellers. Yeah. Vimalakirti is one of these. He's portrayed as a businessman, wealthy. He's got servants, so he's wealthy. 
very successful businessman. He has a wife and children who you never meet in the text. You never even hear their names. He's portrayed as that. And uh, so what happens in the text is you've got the first chapter, which, which is the Buddha, who is living outside of town in Amrapali, for the moment, just staying in Amrapali's park. It's a park that's been given to him by somebody called Amrapali. He's out there teaching. There he is, a renunciant bhikkhu, wanderer, teaching other renunciants. There he is, he's out there. Meanwhile, in the middle of the city is Vimanakirti living as a very rich, wealthy, successful businessman, but highly advanced as a bodhisattva. <coughs> So you get these two different, in a way, spiritual ideals come lifestyles. Very, very interesting. I'll say more about that next week. The different place, the different people. Um, so Vimalakirti is a big character. Very, very big character. He's challenging. He's very, very challenging. And he challenges everybody he meets. If they're a Buddhist already, he really challenges their understanding of Buddhism. He kind of takes the, the, the ground from under their feet. Everybody he does that with, even advanced bodhisattvas. They say that Buddhism is one thing, he just takes the ground from under their feet. If it was that, then it would be this, wouldn't it? And it's not that. So he, he sort of just confuses everybody so that they get a different understanding. So he does that throughout the whole text. And uh, one, of, one of the things that I want to look at uh, over the next few weeks is uh, Vimalakirti's house. It's very, very interesting. Um, so the Buddha's living houseless, homeless, Vimalakirti living in a house, and the house is symbolic, but we'll look at that as we go. That's all I'm going to really say about the text so far. Next week we'll, I'll introduce you to Vimalakirti properly, and we'll have a slideshow because I've, over the years, I've been gathering slides of Vimalakirti and the different characters and the, the different meetings of those characters in the text. So next week, we'll kind of do a whistle-stop tour of the whole Nidesha, looking at the, um, some of the main characters in the text. Um, and I think that's all you need to know to really, so that we can really look at this evening's first chapter. I think that's all you need to know. Yeah. So let's have a cup of tea. And then second half, we're going to actually do um, a Mahayana practice, which is we're going to recite the text. So I'm going to recite it and you're going to listen. So it's going to be a meditation. It's going to be, maybe I should say a few words about that, that uh, uh, this text is not an instruction manual. It's not one of those, as you will find out as soon as we start. What is it then? Um, it's a way, it's, it, um, Sangrakshita once referred to these kind of texts as regions. When you start reading one of these texts or listening to it spoken, you enter into a Buddha region. Yeah? You enter into another state of mind. So the text is a state of mind, yeah? And what we, what the, the whole point of these texts is not to learn stuff. It's not to learn how to do practices so that you can again go ahead and do them later on. That's all taken care of in the early texts. 
And it's under this point you've made to me a couple of times, Paul, is when you read the Vimalakirti, it's got all the, all the, the lists from the Pali Canon in it, but it doesn't tell you what they are, just says the 37 Bodhipakidharmas, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Spiritual Faculties. It doesn't explain them. It's understood that you know those already, so that's all taken for granted. And it's not, this text isn't interested in teaching you new things like that. You practice those, yeah? What it's interested in doing, though, is helping you to enter into the Buddha mind. Yeah? So by reading, by listening, by reciting, by paying homage to this text, you're really reading, paying homage to the Buddha mind, the Buddha region, and it helps you to enter into. So it's, you don't ask this text how to practice. You look to other texts for that you ask this text to catapult you into the bodhicitta, yeah, to help you to enter into a completely and utterly different way of understanding the world that you live in. Yeah? And the world that it describes is kind of the world we live in. It, it, we're a bit removed from it because it was written in India about 2,000 years ago. And it's India that it's describing, but it's not ordinary India, yeah? It's mythical India. Um, the Buddha isn't just sitting around with a bunch of people, as he is in the Pali Canon. He's sitting there with thousands of beings around him. Arahants, fully enlightened beings, bodhisattvas. I think 25,000 of those. I think it's, as far as I know, about 8,000 <coughs> Arahants, 25,000 bodhisattvas thousands upon thousands of gods and then thousands of lay followers men and women upasakas and the whole place is radiated with light glittering with light so we're in a very very different world for world read mind state than the one we're in when we encounter the buddha of the pali canon it's completely different and the practice is to open up to it. That's the practice. You just open. Yeah? Just listen, let it pour into you. Just as you might if you were watching a movie or reading a novel. Yeah? You need to open. That's the practice. Just really listen. Your mind will wander. I can assure you, your mind will wander. Just like when you're doing the mindfulness of breathing, you bring it back. You bring it back. You don't try to make sense of what you're hearing, yeah? Because conceptually, there's not a lot of sense to be made. It's not on that level. It's different. So you just listen, you open, you become as receptive as you can, and you let the text do its work on you. <coughs> That's the practice. And there's nothing more to be done. That's the practice. And when the practice is over, the practice is over. There's nothing more to be done later, yeah? Hopefully we'll have a bit of time and, we'll, you know, once we've finished, I can say, so what happened there for you? You know, and we can talk a bit about it. We may or may not have time. It doesn't really matter that much. But that is the practice, yeah? So Mahayana practice, it's been done for thousands of years. Um, there are, there are people, you read about them in, in China and so on, in Japan, who would, their whole practice would be to read a whole sutra many times a day, same sutra. 
three, four, five, six times a day. Just read the whole sutra all the way through. And the sutra's like a book, yeah? It's not just a few pages, it's a whole book. Read it over and over and over again. You're not learning anything new, you're just entering into the state of mind of the Buddha over and over and over again. So you just don't get any new conceptual understandings, but you begin to see differently. So that's all I'm going to say now. We'll have a cup of tea and then we'll come back and do it. I know, it sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs>